afternoon everyone. This is a Social Work Stories podcast and my name is Liz Murphy. Sitting op- opposite me is the lovely Mim Fox. Hi Liz, how are you doing? I'm going really well. I'm going really well. It's been a good week? Look, it's gone. I mean, it has been. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a great week, both work-wise and non-work-wise. I can't remember a, mi- a minute of it really, but... Um, yeah, sometimes it happens like that, doesn't it? Oh, and also, just having listened to the episode that we're about to talk about, I'm so focused on it. I know, I know. Uh, and, and I want to... Well, initially, I'll just say this. The story that we're about to listen to is about a social worker who works in a spinal unit in a public hospital in Australia. It's a very specialised social work position. There aren't many around. Certainly the skills are a lot of um, counselling, a lot of advocacy, and it's that skill that we're going to hear a lot about in this particular story. You've worked in spinal care have before, haven't you, Liz? six months, enough for me to understand some of this story. So some people will hear six months and think, oh, that's not long. By the end of this episode, I'm thinking they might feel that that's a lot longer than it sounds. <laughs> well, yes. I, well, yes, it, it probably f- it was for about six months. It did feel a lot longer <laughs> at times. But what I also wanted to say to people is a little warning this is a social justice warning. Yeah. You will lis- if you listen to this in the way Mim and I did, your head might explode off your shoulders in relation to the frustrations that this social worker had to work through in relation to advocating for this uh, client. Yeah, we need to do a little ranting and raving. Oh, there'll be ranting and raging. One. I bought my milk crate. It'll be happening. Don't you worry Bring about that. Bring it on, everyone. Let's go. The patient I'm going to speak about today was a 41-year-old gentleman who, uh, perhaps recklessly, uh, ran off the end of a jetty, jumped into shallow water and immediately was rendered quadriplegic. <clears throat> he was airlifted and taken to hospital. He spent three months in um, intensive care and he was really unwell and he was reliant on a ventilator to assist him to breathe. Uh, he was eventually able to breathe on his own, but he did remain reliant on occasional breathing support and also to help him to get secretions off his lungs. So he remains today to this day with a tracheostomy, which is a small incision in the front of the neck into the windpipe. Um, so that, of course, indicates So this is a gentleman that has no sensation or motor function, no movement or feeling below the level of his shoulders. <coughs> So initially when this gentleman was in intensive care, he had one or two visitors uh, to his bedside. But going forward and in the spinal unit, we never saw another visitor at his bedside. So we're speaking here about a very isolated uh, gentleman with no real social network. And I know that when that's what I see in the ward, those are the people I've got to work really hard with. (laughs) So we know that about... um, 30 to 40 percent of really good recovery or adjustment to injury is is based on people's social network their social resources another 20 to 30 percent about what they can bring forth from themselves self-efficacy and 10 to 20 percent on the the supposed experts doctors nurses ot's physios social workers so when i don't see someone at the bedside i think oh this is a guy that um, you know i'm going to probably have to do quite a lot of work with which has certainly been the case with this gentleman so 
it became really clear uh, that this gentleman was a very marginalised member of society. Um, he'd had a history of tortured childhood abuse, uh, limited contacts with the education department. Um, he had had dependence on alcohol and other drugs, and he'd also had multiple contact with the criminal justice system. And he had a limited income via Centrelink, and he did, however, have the security of a Department of Housing residence. So you can understand then from this history how incredibly difficult it must have been for him to have such complete dependence on other people for every single task of his <coughs> existence. Management of all his bodily functions, scratching an itch, uh, every mouthful of food that he had to wait for someone to put into his mouth, every coffee he wanted to make had to be assisted by machinery and physiotherapists. So access to turning a TV on or turning a radio off, um, a desire for privacy to draw a curtain or close a door, none of this is possible. So all mechanisms of his life are managed by others. And prior to injury, this was a gentleman whose survival had really been based around his defiant and fierce independence, um, which really meant a very limited interaction with others. And he took little and asked nothing of the world around him. So when he was well enough, and now in the spinal cord injury unit, as opposed to the intensive care unit, um, he had only one request of me, and that was that he wanted to access his bank account. Understandable. So he'd lost his ID at the site of the accident, and the only replacement I had been able to achieve was to get him a Medicare card. Surprisingly easy, actually, considering what happened thereafter. So <clears throat> to facilitate access to his bank, I needed a key card, and we didn't have a key card, or we needed someone uh, to act as an authorised person or a power of attorney. Now, never before have I had a circumstance where there has been literally no one, no one to fulfil that capacity to offer this man some assistance. So, um, we tried to order a replacement card online, and uh, not unlike me, he couldn't remember his security questions. And so we couldn't do that. So we, we obviously um, made contact with the bank. Um, they said they were unable to assist us unless he was able to verify and prove who he was. So I said that, you know, I'd put him on the phone. That's the normal course for most of the things I do. Um, and uh, they said that wasn't good enough because they were not able to actually prove he was who he said he was. So they said the only way that we'd be able to move forward was for him to actually turn up at the branch. And I identified that he'd probably die on the way down there because he would need breathing assistance, he just wasn't well enough. He was a, he was a very, very unwell man who was now rendered quadriplegic. Um, but they said that they had their rules and that's the way it was. So uh, they said that I would probably be best advised to consider financial management. Now, I argued with them the fact that uh, financial management usually demands proof of co compromised cognitive capacity, which wasn't the case with this gentleman. Um, and I, I, I also railed against the fact that um, a further authoritative body taking over the one remaining aspect of autonomy or self-determination in this man's life was the last thing that I was going to do to diminish what existed of any self-esteem. So his uh, self-determination um, and the control of his life or belief for continuing will to live was really based around this one aspect of his life that he could control and that was access to his finances. And um, the one thing about this gentleman is that um, the nurses 
had been very kind in offering charitable assistance, buying shampoo and toothpaste and the other things that you have to buy when you're a patient in a public hospital. The Social Work Department Patient Assistance Fund had supported the continuing connection of his television. But he found it incredibly humiliating to be receiving charity. He never had and he knew that he had money in the bank and he just wanted to pay these people back. And so that it, it actually got to a point where he was so compromised by accepting um, other people's uh, care and support, charity as he saw it, that he actually started to refuse his cares. So of course I put this argument to the bank and I said, sorry, we have our rules. In sheer desperation, we did decide to attempt uh, a trip to the bank. So they could cite him. I, I did ask them what difference that would make uh, between putting him on the phone, because it could be my brother in the chair. They had no idea if it was actually who he said he was. But anyway, this was supposed to be going to resolve matters. So a registered nurse who would have to monitor the tracheostomy such that if it plugged off um, during the trip, he would suffocate and die. Um, so we had to have her with us. So let's put a dollar value on what that takes for this man to actually get something that he owns and that is access to his own funds. There's no other way to do it so we attempted it. Suffice to say it did not succeed. He didn't die but um, he did, his saturations decreased such that we rushed back to the ward and it just wasn't going to happen. So you're now dealing with a very grumpy, older, uh, exasperated social worker. Okay, so uh, my go-to is to become rather petulant and, and that was getting me nowhere with the bank either. So uh, it, it seemed to be this increasingly farcical kind of circle of you need to get financial management, no that's not what we need to do with this gentleman, you need to come and see him. So I made a request that they come up to the branch, literally the, barn, the branch at the hospital is about 200 metres um, away from the ward. Uh, but they said um, they would have to take that to regional office. Regional office took that to the compliance branch and the compliance branch came back and said, denied. So they could not have a team member leaving the branch. Now the irony is that if I'd asked for a $250 million loan, they probably would have rushed up to my desk and said, how can we help you? At this stage, we had now made numerous calls to the call centre. We had, uh, I had written letters, I'd had two consultants write letters explaining the situation and attempting to advocate with the doctor before their name, which normally has a reasonable mechanism of uh, getting things moving. And um, it, it, none of it was, I gave them his Medicare card, um, I gave them his bank account details, I gave them his CRN, his Centrelink reference number, all identification, all matter, you know, uh, pieces of, identification. Still they said no, they couldn't prove it was him, I was doing it on his behalf, they couldn't prove you know, that, that this wasn't me. I understand banking has become even more uh, difficult than it used to be for our marginalised clients because of the Royal Commission and because there have been many people that have exploited, usually their family, their elder, their, um, the, the older peoples, but their um, bank accounts and so the bank are very stringent about how they will allow people to access and what they haven't taken into account is that you know how does it normally happen um, and I said to them for heaven's sake are you serious they said how was he going to use a key card he has no arms and I said no indeed someone will assist him to go with him to the teller he'll tell them and they said, oh no that impossible that is a breach of the law so in fact, if you do that, we'll freeze his account, and if we find out that you've assisted, we'll freeze your account. 
because that is absolutely against the law. You cannot tell anyone your PIN or let anyone use your key card. To which I laughed and I said to them, are you serious? Every day, practically, I throw my key card at my kids and I say, quick, grab the bread and the milk when I can't find a parking place and they take my key card. They said, don't tell us that or we'll have to freeze your account. So it got to a point now where, where really I was not sure what we were going to do. So I had to escalate this and that's part of a social work role. Um, but uh, I, I just um, threatened them with, I'm going to the ombudsman, which I had hoped, you know, in a, in a juvenile way might mean that they go, oh, all right, all right, let us give you some money. Well, of course, they said, fine, that's fine. So spoke to the ombudsman, they were quite helpful, and I started to complete the complaints uh, form that I had downloaded from the internet. And then I recalled that my brother had actually run a training for the bank post Royal Commission about how they can best serve these unique and marginalised clients. So I called him and I said, um, you know that thing you did, can you please, uh, is there anyone, can I circumvent by giving me a name and I can go straight to top because this is just beyond the past. It's been three weeks, I've spent, you know, I've got 18 clients and I've got, you know, um, all my time has been spent on just trying to negotiate, negotiate access for a patient to his own funds. So he introduced me through an email to somebody that he'd met at the bank and within 20 hours I had $150 delivered to the gentleman at his bedside with an apology from the bank manager of the delays. Now what really disturbs me about that is yes it felt like a great victory but the problem with that is that it was only because I knew someone and went through a rather curious route that I was able to achieve an outcome for this gentleman, which is not the way it should be. I have talked to the bank about the fact that he cannot be the only person in the situation that finds um, it difficult to negotiate the system of going to a bank and or utilising a key card. And I've said to them, there are trillions and millions of people with motoneuron, MS, um, disabilities of, of many types, um, that uh, require assistance of somebody else to access the bank with them. And they said that those people would all have authority. Um, and really, it's been a little bit of a no-win situation. <clears throat> so it wasn't all plain sailing from there because they said that it was a one-off to deliver the money um, and they wouldn't continue to do that. We'd have to come up with a way of really letting them know how we were going to pursue this going forward. Um, and so what I did was I negotiated with this high-level customer advocacy service, identifying that there had to be some way that, this, that we could represent, as far as I was concerned, the bank coming to him, acknowledging that each time his pension came into the bank, he could utilise some funds and bring them to him. Now, someone under financial management will be able to go to a customer service centre where that's done. Again, fairly uh, discriminatory in that there is one in the city and the clients have to go there. One might suggest it's a social outing for them, but um, I think that this gentleman can't go to the bank um, and uh, until he's well enough to do so or became well enough to do so. Uh, one of the things that we decided to do was that we had to get a lawyer who, through the most humiliating process of sticking a large um, texter um, in the patient's mouth um, and making some squiggle on a page. Ironically, that was proof of his identity, but a lawyer said he'd seen him do it. 
authority was provided, I was able to go to the bank and they would provide me with his funds until he was personally able to go um, over the counter. They actually have said to him and they've said to me that they will never issue a key card knowing on record now that he is a tetraplegic and that he can't use his arms, somebody else would have to use the card, that would be a breach of the law, that can never be um, circumvented, so he will never have a key card. So this gentleman by virtue of disability, already you can imagine immense difficulty in dealing with these large institutional bureaucracies, which is in all his life have kind of overwhelmed his ability to make choice, to be autonomous, to you know manage things himself. Um, now is dictating how and when and where and uh, so I just for me it raised all those issues about the it's not an extraordinary story it's not that different it was however and uh, remains apparently the unique the only situation the bank says they've ever encountered of this type and can we come up with some solutions and I said absolutely not I think that you are currently the protector holding this man's money, but it is his funds. You are discriminating against him by virtue of his disability on being able, to, being able to access his own funds. I think you need to tell me how you're going to serve this customer. So this was an ongoing process um, for this gentleman, and it was only one aspect of the, the support that I could offer or had to offer, and that was just access to his funds. Uh, we, of course, he was eligible for NDIS and application was made to NDIS and part of the creative planning around offering him choice and control was to authorise a carer um, to be an authorised person that could take him to the bank and if not him to present personally but to actually get his funds. And this did require a fairly large portfolio um, with the bank that understood um, his circumstances. Um, of course, the, the ongoing negotiation of this gentleman's access to NDIS and again, this, the high level of dependency is only one of the aspects that you encounter with um, a spinal cord injured patient. And normally they have, as I said at the beginning, you know, um, social network that really is significant to facilitating many of these aspects of adjustment going forward. So it raised for me some of those um, basic questions that, that um, come up in social work and that's really about antipressive practice, social justice, all those big motherhood statements about what we hope to do. And in the doing, yes, I think that's what we're providing, but it also um, brings into very sharp focus the environment I think we work in now. And I truly believe 33 years down the track that I am having more difficulty in regard to um, providing um, just basic social service to many of my clients. The fight, um, now this has taken me three weeks, I had, as I said a number of other patients I have not been able to attend to. The amount of clerical work that I do um, really diminishes my role as social worker um, but it is all for the, and I, I do it very willingly because I know it is for the aim of the outcome which is to provide service to um, a, a patient to live meaningfully within the community. Uh, the thing that it raised for me was, um, one, the efforts of advocacy that we, we've always had to do, but that, that we have to go to now more and more. The time it takes, um, which diminishes my 
availability to other patients. And then I have to actually document everything I'm doing and that takes its time to warrant the time I've spent um, to justify my position, my continuing position. Um, and that wasn't an aspect that I used to, that used to be such a stressful part of my role of social work 30 years ago in a clinical setting. Uh, so how do I deal with that? And it's funny that I speak to students about self-care all the time and um, in the end it's not about getting a massage or having a glass of wine with friends or, and I'm not dismissing that, there is great merit in that, but quite often I'm so exhausted by the time I go home, I just want to watch Netflix and turn off. Um, and what I did do in this circumstance was there was a period when I felt very frustrated by not knowing the answer, not knowing how to achieve something that's seemingly so simple for this client that had nothing, that didn't have the many demanding requests that many of our patients understandably might have in times of trauma when everything is seemingly lost to them. And I couldn't achieve it, so what I did was I went to, and I believe this is the greatest lesson of self-care, and that is to go to two incredible colleagues, uh, mentors, friends, and I just went to their office and I told them the story, vented my frustration, which they patiently listened to, and burst into tears. And um, I'm not really embarrassed by that. I still think that uh, that's a good cathartic way to deal with something. They empathised with my frustration. Um, I sort of got myself together and went back to my desk and was able then, it's almost like putting petrol in the car, I refueled, had more energy, had been able to share that, that stress and anxiety. And I then developed some strategies, some goals, tried to break it down into bite-sized pieces and work out what I could do. I still don't think in the end, using my brother as a network, you know, it was successful, but is a, I can't pass that on to other students. <clears throat> So I suppose in self-care it really is about knowing there are some things that we can't achieve. Um, there, it's a belief about even the most menial filling in a form and what that achieves, what it means for our clients. And to that I still passionately hold um, you know, a, a strong belief and it's it not going to deny or defy my passion for social work. So firstly, can I just say, oh my God, Liz! <laughs> I Look, there are certain words that I would love to say, but I won't because I respect our listeners. But last night when I was listening to it, I can tell you the neighbours would have heard a mouthful. Oh my God, so frustrating. This, this story made me furious, oh. just so angry. The amount of work that the social worker had to do to get nowhere. Like, really? Oh, and I know this hospital, right, that, that this social okay, worker Okay, you know it personally. And so I also know how close that bank is oh! to the spinal unit. That is so annoying. When I heard about the lengths that she had to go to just to get that man down to the bank because she said it was 300 meters but it was actually down a lift right and then and then this very short walk like we're talking about next to nothing absolutely next to nothing the man couldn't do it why the bank couldn't go upstairs this is what i can't work out 
Okay. So I feel like in some ways we're jumping ahead. We are. One thing I do want to say is that when I talk about my own frustration, I feel like I'm echoing the social worker. Like her frustration telling that story. You could hear it. Oh, it was so clear, wasn't it? It had taken everything from her. And then for it to end in that nepotistic, very personal way by bringing her brother in, it was too much for me. The injustice of it all was just too much. Absolutely. And she's such a great storyteller too. You could hear the emotion in her voice. But also the feistiness that she would have... I mean, this is no... This is not an assertive person that we're talking oh, about. Okay, you, could, okay. I, you can imagine she would have brought out her A-game when she was advocating to the bank on behalf of this, this man who had... Now, I don't know whether people understand what tetraplegia is, but he virtually had the only power he had in terms of movement was up on the in the upper part of his face, I think. Oh. Like nothing. So he's on a breathing machine. He he's requ- a quadri- quadriplegic. Well, from the neck down. Yes. Yes, that's, that's the impression I got, that actually the only capacity he had was his mouth and his eyes. His ears. So his head was okay and cognitively completely fine. Completely fine. Right? So that I think was the really key point about this case was that actually we had a person who, let's just say, as she, as the social worker said, was marginalised from the beginning. That's right. Like remember that his history was as a person who had already come into contact with every, every bureaucracy there was, was already exactly what you would say in social work terms was a marginalised person. Yes. Yeah. Mim, did you like the way the assessment started even before this social worker had spoken with this gentleman? So just for the listeners, Liz, where do you think the assessment actually began? Oh, I think... Well, you know, in her story she talks about as she eyeballs him in the bed and notices that no one's sitting around him. That's what I thought as well. So there would have been that. There also would have been having had a handover and also reading the notes, of course. But 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 her actual assessment of the person, I think, happened at that point. I think she said that. You can tell a lot by who's around the bed and there was no one around the bed for this man because, as she mentioned, it requires family and friends to support a person after a spinal injury. When you see someone in their bed that has no one around them, and I think she articulated this well, she said, I knew I had a lot of work to do. Yeah, that's right. So she'd actually started planning her intervention just from sight. Yes. Before actually even meeting this man. Very clever. The other thing I wanted to mention... I don't think in my time as a spinal social worker I had ever had so much paperwork to endure <laughs> than when I was working it. No, seriously, there is so much paperwork. Do you know, I liked how she used the word clerical. It harked back to another age of social work, of working in big bureaucracies and of actually having to complete reams. I remember when I first came into social work practice, the reams of paperwork to get someone into a nursing home. 
was astounding, right? And it made me think about how now in hospitals there's the electronic medical records and everyone's moving much faster and social workers often have their phones on them, not just their pages, and there's all these different ways of communication. But when she said that, I thought, oh, gosh, I remember that paperwork. Yeah. So there's a lot anyway mm. when the referring systems are all going well. Yeah. But to have a bank refuse to hand over this man's money and them not even taking the time to go up and understand his situation. No. No, and then making a decision that he, now that they had disclosed what they had to the bank, he was never going to be allowed a key card again because of the potential fraud that could happen. And when she said, but I do that with my children all the time, give them my key card and they go and get bread and bread and milk for me, the bank's response was, don't tell us that or we'll freeze your account as well. So it's active discrimination. Exactly. That this social worker now has disclosed something that they're not going to do, but yet this man who is in hospital in the situation he is, is not going to have the same treatment. So, and I know I'm back on the soapbox, but Get oh on gosh. it though. That it needs to be. You need to be on the soapbox because this man was being discriminated against. Because, actively. Actively because of a disability. Yes. He'd been a, possibly a long-term customer of this bank and they didn't have the decency to go upstairs and understand. He had to come down, what? occupational therapist social worker and a nurse didn't quite get to the counter because why his oxygen supply was cutting out so they had to quickly get him back to the spinal unit that was unit unbelievable or and when she said think about how much of the hospital's resources was being used just to take him downstairs three members of staff plus all that equipment and they couldn't do it which they'd known from the beginning it just wasn't possible and the fact that the social worker said if i'd been wanting a bank loan for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars they would have been there in a shop. They drive to your house and have a conversation with you in the lounge room. But, you know, you and I could rant about this for quite some time. Let's get back to her practice. Yes, let's get back to that. Social inclusion and actually raising up his dignity. That felt to me like the underlying principles, core values that she was coming from in her practice. Would you agree with that? Absolutely came through, um, both in her frustration but also in her tenacity, yeah, she wasn't going to let this guy down, even though it involved, you know, as you said, nepotism. But, you know, I, I got a sense this woman would have sold a kidney <laughs> in order to support this. Preferably of the bank manager. <laughs> <laughs> Too far? Too Have far? <laughs> Look, I think if we go back to what she actually did with this man, right? Okay. So she was liaising with every single profession and discipline that was working with him. She was advocating at all levels. She'd gone to the ombudsman, right? So she'd gone to local parliament to make sure there was someone speaking on behalf of this man. She was writing reports, letters. She was getting the doctors to write letters. Finally, she was going to her personal networks to say, does someone know about what the bank's obligations in this area are? Right? So... One of the things that I think is that this is the stuff that can break you as a social worker because the other frustration that she would have been having is this is taking me away from also working with this guy around the fact that he's had a catastrophic 
injury. That's right. What about the emotional impact? None of that would have been addressed because he needed this money because wrapped up around that money and repaying the nurses was his dignity. Yeah. And it was possibly one thing that he could have some control over, one would have thought. One would have thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking about how sometimes social workers get really weird referrals in hospitals, right? They sometimes get that referral about, uh, can you go get a, organise a haircut for this person? Yeah, things like that. But the one, can you go to the ATM for this patient, I remember from my time in hospitals did come up quite a bit. And there is one part of me that goes, are you serious? That's not a social work task. That doesn't take a degree to do, right? But when you think about a man like this, taking his key card and going to the ATM, that's an essential part of raising his dignity, right? And look, we've all had the budgie that that needed to be fed or the dog that's left at home when the person's been brought into emergency department. We've all had that. And if you take the task away from the context, yeah, you can imagine people going, I didn't go to do a four-year degree to do that kind of stuff. But when we contextualise it, as we've done with this particular person, it's so much more than just the withdrawing money. So let's come back to the importance of clerical work and admin work now, okay? Because if you actually contextualise it, had she not done that paperwork expertly and absolutely how it had needed to be done with advocacy running right through it, he would not have got what he could. Hmm. Had she made some decisions about the timing of that paperwork, she maybe could have changed outcomes for him, right? The, the admin is actually a tool to get you back to the core principles of your practice, which was, in this case, social inclusion and raising his dignity. And I know that perhaps maybe Maslow's hierarchy of needs isn't fashionable at times, but you don't get the money... You don't get those base needs met. No fancy kind of therapy around loss, um, sense of self and identity and the changes in that. You're not going to be able to even get there yeah. if someone's worried about the fact that they need to pay the nurses back or they haven't got a place to go and live. And he was demonstrating dignity every step of the way, wasn't he? Like that decision that he would take those gifts from the nurses but wanted to pay it back, mm. essential. Do we have something here, Liz, that we need to talk about around the boundaries of the social worker in how she, yes, she pushed and she pushed and she pushed, but was she protecting herself while she was doing that? What do you mean? Like she just kept, you know, eventually she had to go back to the relationship with her brother. So she was drawing in her personal resources. She would have been exhausted by this case. I think she said that. Remember, she she debriefed with a friend. Yes. She cried, she had a glass of wine, and then she got back. So we need to come back to self-care, don't we? We really need to come back to how you actually take care of yourself while you are giving so much, especially to a case like this, which will be so exhausting. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I think, I think, I feel like there's so much more ranting I want to do, but maybe we can actually put this out to the listeners Maybe we can say, was this a story that resonated with people in the way that it did to us? I'd love to know. Or is it just you and me on the soapbox, Liz? Well, <laughs> yes, let's throw it out to our listeners. Are we the only two plus this social worker that's frustrated with the 
the insanity and the lack of compassion shown by that organisation to this particular person. Yeah, yeah. And what, what would our listeners have done if they were the social worker working with this? Oh, excellent question. Man. Hmm. Yeah. Because I've been pondering that. If you were with that, working with that man, would you have played it differently? Yeah. And what would that have looked like anyway? Okay. Good question to end on, Liz. Well, okay. Let's end. Thank you so much, Liz, for that discussion and the debriefing. That was needed for us, I think, after that story. I think it was too. And thank you to that wonderful social worker. And maybe in listening to us have a similar experience, just listening to her story might help in some small way. Yeah, our heads are exploding off our shoulders too. We're behind you, sister. Absolutely. The tribe is in your corner. You were tenacious and... Um, yeah, and I hope that that man has now been discharged and has access to his money and a home and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much to Ben Joseph and Justin Stesh who make up our beautiful podcast team. Thank you to all of you listeners for keeping on tuning in. Put us, send us your reviews, your comments, your stars. We love it all. We do indeed. Contact us on Instagram, on uh, Twitter at s-o-w-k story pod i wish you could see ben joseph here miming to mim what that address (laughs) is it's the magic behind the curtain it is sorry i've just revealed it (laughs) (laughs) however you all want to reach out to us we love it so please do and have a really good week everyone take care of yourselves in the same way we hope that social worker does Well said. All the best. Bye. Bye.